Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny Minton-Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Each week, we select three of the defining stories from the paper. We think they are essential pieces of insight and analysis that will help inform you on the go. You can listen to them in just a moment. But first, over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's coming up. Thanks, Zanny. It's March the 28th, 2019. I'm Anne McElvoy. We have two different cover stories this week. In Britain, our cover reports on another week of Brexit chaos. And in the rest of the world, we turn to Israel with a profile of the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's fighting both an election campaign and criminal charges for corruption, and his struggles provide a parable of modern populism. In finance, cryptocurrencies have gone from boom to bust. We explain why a lasting revival is unlikely. And finally, the case for returning stolen art is strong. But when it comes to refusing tainted donations, things are less clear-cut. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. So if you'd like to read or listen to more of what we do, then please do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. First up, Israeli politics. And King Bibi shows the strengths and weaknesses of modern populism. His devotees call him the magician, the winner and the ultimate accolade, Melech Yisrael, king of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's most gifted politician in a generation. He is his country's second longest serving prime minister and, if he wins his fifth election on April 9th, may beat the record of the country's founding father, David Ben-Gurion. Bibi, as he is known by all, is important beyond Israel too, and not only because he speaks in perfect soundbites in both Hebrew and English and stands tall in today's chaotic Middle East. He matters because he embodied the politics of muscular nationalism, chauvinism and the resentment of elites long before such populism became a global force. Mr Netanyahu counts among his friends and allies such nationalists as Donald Trump and Narendra Modi, not to mention European ones from Viktor Orban in Hungary to Matteo Salvini in Italy. The reign of King Bibi is thus a parable of modern politics, the rise of a talented politician and a long success based on a perplexing mixture of carrying out sound policy and cynically sowing division. As his power is threatened, he has turned to railing more loudly against the free press, the judiciary and shadowy forces. Now Bibi faces his greatest danger in the form of criminal charges for corruption. In a different age, he would have had to resign and would now be defending himself as an ordinary citizen. But he is intent on remaining in office and hopes that voters will yet save him from the policemen, prosecutors and judges. Israeli politics is turning into a contest between genuine achievement and demagoguery on one side and the rule of law on the other. All who care about democracy should watch closely. Little Israel commands attention because it has a big history. 
biblical romance and technological talent, the slaughter of the Holocaust and military prowess, energetic democracy and the long occupation of land claimed and inhabited by Palestinians. That said, Mr Netanyahu is a big figure in his own right. He is more intelligent and capable than many populists and can claim plenty of successes. By shrinking the bloated state, he has helped Israel's economy flourish, particularly its tech startups. With deft use of diplomacy and the mostly cautious use of military force, he has boosted security without being sucked into disastrous wars. Thanks to that and a shared hostility to Iran, relations with many Arab rulers are better than at any time in Israel's history. Yet Mr Netanyahu is also worryingly dogmatic. He has paid lip service to peace with Palestinians, but has taken no meaningful steps towards it. He has denounced any Western cooperation with Iran, even if it served to limit Iran's nuclear programme. In Bibi's pessimistic view, Israel is surrounded by wolves in sheep's clothing and wolves in wolves' clothing. Israel can only manage conflicts, not solve them, he believes, so it must rely on an iron wall and the passage of time. Such anti-solutionism risks storing trouble for the future. It increases the danger of war with Iran, or of its hardliners making a dash for nukes. The more Israel entrenches itself in the West Bank, the more its temporary military occupation looks like the permanent subjugation of Palestinians under a separate law, even apartheid. This is made worse by the absence of America's restraining influence. Mr Netanyahu has warmly embraced Mr Trump, who in turn has showered him with gifts, most recently his endorsement of Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights. Might Mr Trump also back Israel's annexation of bits of the West Bank, so denying Palestinians the hope of statehood? In the long run, Bibi's overt alignment with America's Republicans and the evangelical right endangers the bipartisan pro-Israeli consensus in Washington that is the foundation of Israel's security. But the greatest threat from Bibi's reign has been at home. He has kept power not just on the strength of his record, but also by seeking political advantage at the cost of eroding Israel's democratic norms. In claiming that no peace with Palestinians is possible or desirable, members of his right-wing coalition outbid each other to pass measures asserting Jewish supremacy. Mr Netanyahu pushed for an electoral pact with the hitherto untouchable far-right Jewish power group which wants to annex all the occupied territories and encourage Arabs, including Israeli citizens, to leave. He has played us-and-them politics for so long that he has exacerbated the country's many schisms between Jews and Arabs, diaspora Jews and Israelis, Western Ashkenazi and Eastern Mizrahi Jews and secular and religious ones. By casting himself as uniquely able to protect Israel against its enemies, he often treats those who say otherwise as wimps or traitors. Mr Netanyahu and his friends denounce as backstabbers any Jews who stand in their way. The free press peddles fake news. Political opponents, even the generals who pack the new blue and white opposition party, are in cahoots with the Arabs. 
Bibi has flirted with the conspiracy theory beloved of anti-Semites that George Soros, a Jewish billionaire, is plotting to undermine nationalist governments around the world. The corruption charges against him, says Mr Netanyahu, amount to a blood libel, a vile medieval canard that accused Jews of mixing the blood of murdered Christian children in their Passover bread. Yet the police chief who investigated the charges and the attorney general who ordered his indictment were both hand-picked by Mr Netanyahu. His allies want a law that would grant a prime minister immunity from prosecution. Israel is an outlier among Western democracies. It was born as the state of the Jews. Zionism and Palestinian nationalism claim the same land. Israel must contend with a genuine other and existential threats, not the bogeyman invented by populists elsewhere. The left, in disarray in many countries, suffered a body blow in Israel because its attempt to negotiate a land-for-peace deal with Palestinians collapsed into bloodshed. Yet precisely because of these pressures, Israel offers an important test of the resilience of democracy. On April 9th, Israeli voters face a fateful choice. Re-elect Mr Netanyahu and reward him for subverting the independence of Israel's institutions or turf him out in the hope of rebuilding trust in democracy and aspiring to be a light unto the nations. What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa? More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers, establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com. Next, can cryptocurrencies recover? Why flaws in Bitcoin make a lasting revival unlikely? Be more Brenda, said the ads for Coin Corner, a cryptocurrency exchange. They appeared on London's Underground last summer, featuring a cheery pensioner who had apparently bought Bitcoins in just 10 minutes. It was bad advice. Six months earlier, a single Bitcoin cost just under $20,000. By the time the ads appeared, its value had fallen to $7,000. These days, it is just $4,025. While the price was soaring, big financial institutions such as Barclays and Goldman Sachs flirted with opening cryptocurrency trading desks. Brokerages sent excited emails to their clients. The Chicago Board Options Exchange, or CBOE, one of the world's leading derivatives exchanges, launched a Bitcoin futures contract. Hundreds of copycat cryptocurrencies also soared, some far outperforming Bitcoin itself. Ripple rose by 36,000% during 2017. The bust has been correspondingly brutal. Those who bought near the top were left with one of the world's worst performing assets. Cryptocurrency startups fired employees – Banks shelved their products. 
On March 14th, the CBOE said it would soon stop offering Bitcoin futures. Bitmain, a cryptocurrency miner, appears to have pulled a planned IPO. Miners maintain a cryptocurrency's blockchain, a distributed transaction database using huge numbers of specialised computers and are paid in newly minted coins. The speed with which the bubble inflated and then popped invites comparisons with past financial manias, such as the Dutch tulip craze in 1636-37 and the rise and collapse of the South Sea Company in London in 1720. Cryptocurrency enthusiasts like to claim a more flattering comparison with the 1990s dot-com bubble. They point out that despite the froth, viable businesses emerged from that episode. But the cryptocurrency fiasco has exposed three deep and related problems. The extent of genuine activity is hugely exaggerated. The technology does not scale well and fraud may be endemic. Consider the overstatement of activity first. Ten years after their invention, using cryptocurrencies to pay for goods and services remains a niche pastime. Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency and still the most popular. In January, Satoshi Capital Research, a cryptocurrency firm, declared that Bitcoin transactions in 2018 added up to $3.3 trillion, more than six times the volume handled by PayPal. But such figures include an awful lot of double counting, mostly related to the way Bitcoin handles change, says Kim Grauer at Chainalysis, a firm that analyses Bitcoin's blockchain. Strip that out and Chainalysis reckons that Bitcoin accounted for around $812 billion of genuine transfers of value. Of that, Ms. Grauer reckons, only a fraction was used to buy things. Around $2.4 billion went to merchant service providers, which handle payments for businesses, a piffling sum compared with the $15 trillion of transactions in 2017 on Alipay and WeChat Pay, two Chinese payment apps. Darknet markets which sell stolen credit card details, recreational drugs, cheap medicines and the like made up $605 million and gambling sites $857 million. Most of the rest was related to speculation. Even for speculators, business is less brisk than it seems – Wash trading, in which traders buy and sell to each other or themselves to create the illusion of volume, is widespread. Bitwise Asset Management, a cryptocurrency fund manager, analysed 81 cryptocurrency exchanges for a presentation on March 20th to the Securities and Exchange Commission, an American financial regulator. The firm estimated that 95% of trading volume could be artificial – The Justice Department is investigating claims of price manipulation. The second problem is that the technology is too clunky to operate at scale. Cryptocurrencies are unlikely ever to achieve mass adoption, says Nicholas Weaver, a computer scientist at the University of California, Berkeley. Unlike Alipay or WeChat Pay, cryptocurrencies are intended as new financial systems rather than extensions to the current one but they have serious design flaws. 
Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, wanted it to be resistant to control by tyrannical governments and banks. Payment records are therefore not held centrally, but broadcast to all users. A new batch of Bitcoin is issued every 10 minutes on average. That limits the network to processing about seven transactions per second. Visa, by contrast, can handle tens of thousands per second. In 2017, as the crypto bubble was inflating, the system became clogged. To ensure that transactions went through, users had to pay miners, at one point, as much as $50 per transaction. Moreover, Bitcoin is designed such that only 21 million Bitcoins will ever be created, making it inherently deflationary. Mining essentially a self-adjusting lottery in which participants compete to buy tickets is energy-hungry. At the height of the boom, it was thought to consume as much electricity as Ireland. These days, it merely consumes as much as Romania. The final problem is fraud. Transactions are irreversible, a boon for con artists. Ponzi schemes are common, as is incompetence. Cryptocurrency exchanges often collapse or are hacked. In February, Quadriga CX, a Canadian exchange, filed for bankruptcy, saying it had lost $165 million in deposits when its founder, Gerard Cotton, died, since only he had known the encryption keys protecting Quadriga CX's deposits. But on March 1st, Ernst and Young, which was appointed to handle the bankruptcy, said that the deposit addresses seem to have been empty for at least eight months before the date Mr Cotton is said to have died. Attempts are underway to get round some of these limitations. Some Bitcoin enthusiasts are testing an add-on called the Lightning Network, which tries to speed things up by moving many transactions off the blockchain. Stablecoins, whose value is supposedly pegged to something else, are touted as a way to rein in speculation. Once again, promise often falls short of reality. On March 14th, Tether, the most popular stablecoin, with $2 billion worth in circulation, said that it might not be fully backed with dollars after all. None has achieved even Bitcoin's limited take-up. Most fans simply want cryptocurrency prices to start rising again. In 2017, John McAfee, a cryptocurrency enthusiast who made his money in antivirus software, said that if Bitcoin was not worth $1 million in 2020, he would eat an intimate part of his anatomy on television. On March 20th, he tweeted that losing that bet was not mathematically possible. Last year, Jack Dorsey, Twitter's boss, said he thinks Bitcoin will be the world's single currency within a decade. Facebook is working on some kind of cryptocurrency project. Market analysts and pundits provide cheery reassurance that the currency will soon soar again. Mr Weaver is sceptical, at least in the short term. The very visible boom and bust and more attention from regulators have probably cut the number of willing new punters, he says. But boosters are trying their best. They have taken to referring to the post-bust period as a crypto winter. The intended analogy is with artificial intelligence. 
the AI winters were funding crunches in the 1970s and 1980s after hype outstripped reality. The implication is that one day, summer will return. And finally, culture vultures. Museums should return stolen art, but accept donations from nearly anyone. It didn't take much. A theatrical die-in at the New York Guggenheim Museum in February, a threat by Nan Goldin, a photographer, to pull her works from the National Portrait Gallery in London, a warning of unspecified guerrilla actions against British museums. Since mid-March, the Guggenheim, the National Portrait Gallery and the Tate Galleries have all cracked. None will accept future gifts from the Sackler family, prolific philanthropists who own Purdue Pharma, a firm that created an opioid, OxyContin, and claimed it was not terribly addictive. So Western museums will be a little poorer. They might also have less stuff to show if another sort of campaign prevails. In November, a report commissioned by Emmanuel Macron, France's president, argued that museums should hand back to former colonies artworks that were acquired by force or through inequitable conditions. Since colonialism was inequitable, that implies France should hand back almost everything. To museums and their defenders, this is all silly, a thoughtless attack on cultural temples by a generation too easily outraged. But the campaigns ought to be distinguished from each other. The arguments for returning art acquired in dodgy ways are stronger than the arguments for giving back money. To take an egregious example of looted art, the Benin bronzes were stolen from a royal palace in what is now Nigeria during a punitive British expedition in 1897, then flogged off to finance the raid. They ended up in European and American museums. Because the raid cannot possibly be defended, and because the bronzes would make more sense as a group, they should go back. Some will argue that returned objects are likely to be poorly preserved, stolen or smashed by jihadists, as has sometimes happened. Besides, if you start giving things back, where do you stop? The first is a worry. The risk can be minimised, though not eradicated, by making copies and by returning objects only to reasonably stable countries. Nigeria just about qualifies. The Democratic Republic of Congo does not. The second argument is flawed. It is already accepted that recently stolen objects ought to be returned, as when, in February, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York relinquished to Egypt a gilded coffin that turned out to have been looted in 2011. It has become accepted that art taken from Jews by the Nazis should be returned to their descendants. This shows that a line between the intolerable and the just-about tolerable, between the past and the distant past, can be drawn and moved without a free-for-all, in which vast amounts of art are suddenly up for grabs. Objects demonstrably stolen in the colonial era belong on the intolerable side of the line and should be returned. The campaigns against tainted philanthropy are weaker, however. If money was legally earned, museums should, in most cases, feel free to accept it. Does it benefit humanity more to return a sack of cash to the Sacklers or to spend it on bringing culture to multitudes?
Museums should not accept stolen money, of course, and if they decide that the reputational risk of taking a particular donation is not worth it, fine. But they should remember that controversies can be fleeting and that their successors may curse them for their squeamishness. Those who decry the laundering of corporate reputations through charity forget something. It does not work well. All their good works did not prevent Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller from being remembered as robber barons. The Sacklers are a target for protests, partly because the family name appears on so many buildings, not in spite of that. So suspicious do big donors seem that Henry Tate, a sugar baron who established the London Museum, is sometimes said to have profited from slavery, though he did not. Indeed, he was an unusually kindly employer. People give to museums in the hope that they will be remembered well. All they really achieve is to be remembered. That's just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. If you'd like to read or listen to more of what we do, then please do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. Let me just close this real quick. So if you need a back-end developer, a UI designer, or a project manager for six days or six months, Upwork is how. Hey, I have this room booked at noon? I'm just wrapping up here. Upwork professionals have the flexibility and capability to work from anywhere. Yeah, it's 1201. Okay, it's all yours. Which is nice if you're already low on conference rooms. Plus, they're proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how.